Welcome to episode number 56. This is Peak Curiosity, and I am Abigail Carlson. My guest today is 23. He has a YouTube channel. He is the author of two books about the biology of sex, a fiction that looks like a spy-slash-history-slash-thriller type, and a four-part book series in architecture and has almost finished his architecture degree. I don't know much about how IQ works, but I would estimate he has one of over 100. Zach Elliott is brilliant and extraordinarily articulate. That was actually the first thing I noticed in the interview. He doesn't misspeak, and he doesn't say like. Amazing. The main topic of discussion in this episode, though, was his work in the field of sex, gender, and biology, as well as some of the cultural pressures and arguments for the trans movement. In this episode, I mentioned some podcasts and videos. One in particular was documentation of males being able to breastfeed under special circumstances. Those podcasts and videos will all be linked in the episode description. You can find all of Zach's work collected at ZacharyAElliott.com. All right, so my name is Zach Elliott. I started a Twitter account in 2019 into 2020 looking at sex and gender and doing research into sex differences between males and females. My background is not in biology, it's actually in architecture. And I'm going to be graduating this next semester with a Bachelor of Architecture degree. Uh, but I also plan on pursuing a Master of Science in Biology in the fall of 2022. And so I got really interested in sex and gender back in 2017, when I saw in the culture just all this, uh, all this controversy happening around aspects about our biology that seemed so self-evident, like the fact that males and females were real categories that existed out in the world. I was wondering why were those things being challenged so much? And it was really fascinating to me. So I wound up doing a lot of reading, a lot of research into not just the uh, differences that are in the body of males and females, but also just on average, like psychological sex differences that exist between men and women on average and the overlap there. And also what aspects of sex differences are socially constructed, what aspects are more biologically based and understanding the relationship between those two things. And so from there, I started writing a lot more and especially in 2019, I wrote a book called The Gender Paradox, and that focuses on this very topic, exploring why, uh, why this specific ideology around social construction exists in the culture right now, and also explaining why there's differences between males and females on the level of biology and psychology and society. And so going into 2020, I really wanted to I felt, I felt like there was something missing in right now in terms of just inf good information coming out about why sex is binary, why uh, sex and gender can be conceptualized in a slightly different way, and understanding sex differences in general. I just thought that there was a lot of, uh, there needed to be a way of communicating that that was really easy to understand and digestible. And so I started an organization called the Paradox Institute in 2020. And I make, there I make short five-minute animated videos on sex and gender. 
going over why sex is binary, why sex is important, what's the difference between sex and gender. And I also look at many um, developmental conditions that relates to people's reproductive biology. Those are the intersex conditions or DSDs. So from there, it's just, it's grown a lot and I've just been really enjoying all of it too and getting all these perspectives from people and continuing to read and write. Uh, it's been really, really meaningful. So that's where I am right now. That's awesome. And are you 22? 23. 23. Uh, yeah, turned uh, 23 in February. Hmm. How do you think you've been able to be so successful? Because I think it's really impressive that at this age to have a book out, you have a degree, basically. It seems like an overwhelming amount of work. How have you been able to accomplish it? Yeah, just like the like the balancing the time even and yeah, mm -hmm. it's really it's not it's not the easiest for sure. I mean, um, I really got interested in writing years ago when I first started um, college and even before that, and I wound up writing doing a lot of writing actually about my architecture studios and just kind of like a journaling experience and and writing um, about those experiences and that helped me. Uh, Kind of helped with time management and understanding like how to structure the tasks that I had to do and architecture school really helped that in general just knowing like oh I got to balance this project I got to plan out the schedule I have to understand when it's due and understand like what steps I need to take to get there and so with writing I would just set a specific time or a specific part of the day where I would write and so what happened was um, as I got more experience doing that, I just, every morning or most mornings, I would just get up, I'd write for a few hours a day, and then I would stop and not touch it that whole day, and then come back the next day and edit it a little bit and then continue writing. So keeping that structure there was like so helpful. And, um, and also outlining the writing too, and it just helps, speeds, it speeds things up, it keeps you on pace. So. It definitely takes a lot of both determination, like perseverance. You have to really have a passion for it at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, and you also have to have a good uh, ability to time manage and, and balance your life. Like it's not, it's not easy at all. Um, but if you have the passion and the drive and you set up those kind of logistical things like a schedule or just a routine, like that helps so much. Sure. <laughs> That's how I've been able to do that. Yeah. Sure. Um, were you working through this also or just doing the school and the writing? Just, just school and writing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. It would have been so hard to, to work at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. And I know there's plenty of people who work and go to school and yeah, it's really difficult. Like you have to be so, so, um, cognizant of how you're using your time, especially if you're working at the same time and you're trying to like let's say work on a project that has nothing to do with those <laughs> two things yeah. yeah yeah um i should mention i normally try to read the books if i'm having an author on um mm -hmm. i tr ordered yours and it won't be here to like tomorrow or something so mm -hmm. uh i tried but it didn't oh didn't it's okay go. Yeah. <laughs> no worries <laughs> so why are there only two sexes? 
So there's only two sexes because let's let's go from first the most simplest explanation, and then we can kind of get into the weeds of it to understand it. So there's only two sexes because at the base foundation, there's only two reproductive roles in most complex organisms to create a new zygote or a new organism. Only two reproductive roles. There's only two ways that those that genetic information can be combined to then create a new organism. Now there's in other in some species, there are, let's say like fungi, there's uh, fungi will have like thousands of different um, ways of combining their genetic information. But in most species, there's only two ways. And that way is through a male and a female. And so at the base, that's what sexes are, is just reproductive roles. And the difference between male and female at its most base level is the difference in the male reproductive role and the female reproductive role as it relates to gamete type. So whether you as a male develop, like you develop a phenotype that produces small gametes, so that's the male reproductive role, and then the female is the reproductive role that produces large gametes. And so all of the reproductive biology that develops from male and female supports those two different gamete production strategies. And the reason why there's a difference there between small gametes and large gametes is because from an evolutionary perspective that actually having that difference maximizes the efficiency of sexual reproduction. It allows for uh, a new zygote, a new organism, to get a lot of resources through the large gametes, through those eggs, but it also allows for there to be more gamete fusions that way and more efficiency with the small gametes uh, being so fast and high in number reaching the large gametes. And so you're able to create a lot of genetic diversity still through sexual reproduction, but also uh, keep the zygote alive through all the resources that they're provided through the eggs and then the genetic diversity and the, the genetic uh, recombination and everything through the small gametes fusing with the large gametes that way. So yeah, at, at base, sexes are two different reproductive roles that are centered around gamete type. And uh, we can go into that more, but like, and I can give you examples too across, you know, the animal kingdom and, and like even how that developed in terms of evolutionary past, but, but that's the base understanding of it. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. Do you have more? Yeah. Well, I think there's often like a, I, there's often a misunderstanding with what sexes are. Um, I've seen it so much with, with trans activists, especially where they think that they'll straw man when we say that sex is binary, they'll straw man it and say, well, we can't uh, find the specific trait that always differentiates between male and female. And sexes, it, it's common for people to think that sexes are like a singular, like you can just reduce it to, to singular parts. Like, oh, a male has, is, a male has a penis, a female has a vagina. Like, people just think that you can reduce it to that, and that's what sexes are. But it's not, it's not really the case. Um, those traits play a primary part in what male and female are, but they're not the singular, the singular trait. And so the key to understanding 
what sexes are at the base is looking at things from what's called like a systems biology point of view. So understanding that there's these many different parts that interact to form one evolutionary function. So for example, you can think of like your eyes and your eyes are made up of many, many parts, some simple parts, some complex parts. They all interact together to form this complex system that has an emergent evolutionary property of sight. And so what sexes are, they're also this emergent property. They have a specific function. They can be thought of as evolutionary mechanisms, just like eyes are evolutionary mechanisms. And so when you understand what that sexes are, evolutionary mechanisms and evolutionary strategies for reproducing, then you understand that, oh, sexes are not just what we look like. <laughs> sure. They're not just like what our body shape is. They're much deeper, much deeper than that. And they cross, you know, they're not just, it's not just that way in humans, but across most species, most plants and animals in the animal kingdom reproduce through males and females, whether the male and female are in separate individuals, whether the male and female roles are in even one individual in her, like hermaphroditic plants. So yeah, it's, that's the really the key to understanding it and like understanding the fallacy of reducing things to, oh, it just, a male just looks like this or a female just looks like that. I mean, yeah, those are uh, good indicators and often primary indicators like ovaries and testes of what, of what makes up a male and female. But that's not ultimately at the base what male and female are. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I thought we could try to play a game. We'll see if I'm able to wrap my mind around it. I was going to yeah, try to be a trans activist and argue against you. Mm -hmm. So let's see if this goes anywhere. Okay. <laughs> let's do it. Okay. So some men with quotes mm -hmm. and some women maybe don't produce sperm or eggs because maybe... I don't know. Just right. Just so therefore, whether they have a condition or infertile or right. Yeah. So therefore, there aren't men and women. Okay. Did I do it right? Yeah, that was perfect. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. There's so in that case, yeah. There's not just two sexes, or there's not men and women, or yeah, like, or there's no like differences there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you can think of that even we can go back to like an eye analogy. It's akin to saying that if your eyes don't work, you don't have eyes, mm -hmm. you know? It's, just, it's like saying if you don't have a kidney or if your kidney doesn't work, you don't have a kidney. It's just, we don't know what it is, you know, we can't tell. And we can tell what an eye is when it's not functioning because we know what parts make up an eye, you know? And so with sexes, it's the same thing. The only reason we know what uh, sex you are when you're born is because we understand what parts of your body, what parts of your reproductive system directly correlate to what sex you are. So for example, a male baby is born. They're born with a penis, testes. They have an internal Wolfian reproductive structure. Um, and almost always they have XY chromosomes. So all those things come together and, oh, that is a male because our expectation is they're going to grow up and be fertile. Now, if they're not fertile, they're still a male because they still have that internal biology that they developed 
and that's how we indicate that they're male or female. And um, another objection is like, well, what if they're not, what if they're born with, let's say, um, atypical traits? Let's say they're not, a baby is born with uh, a penis that is underdeveloped. It's like, it looks like ambiguous. Mm -hmm. There's indicators that we can look at both internally and also uh, in their DNA, like chromosomes, for example, uh, that show us whether they're male or female. And again, what we're looking for is indicators, biological markers that tell us what reproductive role this person developed along. And if they would have developed further, what they would have uh, fully developed into, been able to produce small gametes or been able to produce large gametes, that type of thing. So that's how we rough, you know, that's how we uh, indicate what sex they are that way. Mm -hmm. It feels like you could say, well, generally speaking, if the human has formed correctly, they will have two arms and two legs. But mm -hmm. if they're born without, just a couple are born without an arm, you can say, well, therefore, humans aren't born with two arms or two legs. That may be mm -hmm. not quite a one for one, but it feels like because that there, there are exceptions to the rule, it means there are no rules. But I think exceptions help prove the rule in most cases. Yes, they do. They do help prove the rule because there's examples that I've looked at from just studying uh, developmental conditions that affect sex development. So those are often uh, termed intersex conditions or disorders of sex development or differences of sex development or variations of sex development. So those conditions actually are exceptions that prove the rule because they've actually allowed us to greater, like, understand what male and female are and how they develop in the womb on a greater level. And I can give you an example. There's, there's one condition called MRKH, and it causes, in a female, the reproductive system to be basically atrophied to a degree and not develop fully. Mm -hmm. So their uterus might be underdeveloped, the upper part of their vagina might not be developed, and there are certain genes that um, have mutations that don't allow that malarian reproductive system to develop fully. And so with those cases where those things don't develop fully, it shows us what mechanisms are at play that then develop male and female reproductive biology in uh, the healthy, typical way. So it, it allows us to see, oh, it's not that there's another sex. It's that there's these gene mutations that block this, these certain hormone pathways that, that stop this female reproductive system from developing fully. Uh, there's another example called androgen insensitivity syndrome. Mm -hmm. And that's a common one you'll see too. And that one is interesting because it shows the importance of androgen receptors for male development. And it shows what happens when, when males uh, are not able to get any androgen whatsoever, and so they develop as a female. They develop down the female path. Hmm. What happens is there's a mutation in the androgen receptor gene. And from there, uh, instead of developing 
the internal male structures. They um, develop just a female body, basically. They, there's no way for their body to receive any testosterone, any androgens. Mm. They just develop the uh, kind of switch tracks onto the female pathway. And so that also shows us how robust male and female are because that person who developed with that condition, they're not a new sex. They're just, they're an example of how those mechanisms when either mutated or not developing in a typical way can alter your biology, but still be a male or female at that end point. And so, yeah, that's, that's a really, uh, it's really important to understand that those conditions like that do prove the rule when you understand how their biology works. It's often treated as like this, oh my gosh, they're just in between male and female and like we don't understand their biology really well or they, they just have all these traits that exist on a spectrum and um, when you dig into the weeds of it, it's not true because uh, no, they still develop as a male or female at the end point. You know, there's no, there's no new reproductive function created. They're still either male or female. They still develop down the male pathway towards that small gamete production, or they develop down the female pathway towards the large gamete production. And all the traits that are associated with those two different roles as it relates to your body type and everything like that and the, the reproductive system you develop. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to go back into my trans activist mode. <clears throat> nice. <laughs> in some species, for example, the seahorse, mm. the mm. males carry the babies and give birth. So therefore, sex is only a social construct. So the great counter to this is that the male seahorses, we don't, we don't distinguish male seahorses as male because they become pregnant. Because obviously that's a trait that is common in females, especially in obviously mammals. But the reason why we can designate them as male is because they have the small gamete reproductive role. They produce small gametes, sperm. And guess what? That is the same exact trait that human males have. They develop the small gamete reproductive role. They're the fertilizers. They produce sperm. So <laughs> male seahorses and male humans have that trait in common. And so that's the distinguishing factor. And so sex is a real category that exists across species. There have been a few occasional documented cases of men breastfeeding their children, their babies, newborns. So therefore, sex is on a spectrum. My question would be, are these, are these men trans men? No. No, they're they're taking are they taking hormones? Are these men taking hormones? Um so out of trans activist mode for a second. Um <laughs> <laughs> I have heard of this. I haven't looked that deeply into mm -hmm. the documentation and stuff, but there have been rare cases where directly after birth maybe the mother dies in birth mm -hmm. and like there's just something crazy that happens and the men are able to breastfeed. I oh, okay. that's huh. all I've ever heard um just and it is yeah, so, very very rare like there has to be such yeah. an extreme survival instinct that you're because oh, from wow. what I hear a lot of the 
I don't know, maybe I'm making stuff up. But a lot of the, quote, plumbing is all there. It just is not developed in males. Right. Yeah. Like the genes and hormones maybe yeah. aren't there to fully, yeah. 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 I think uh, if that was used as an argument, I would say that there are certain secondary sexual traits that often are correlated to our reproductive roles. Like, let's say, facial hair mm-hmm. in guys. You know, that's obviously much more common in, in men, facial hair. Women don't really tend to develop facial hair. Uh, at all but even then it's really it's really fine and you know not really prominent at all but um let's say a woman did develop facial hair she wouldn't be a man she wouldn't be a male because again you know male and female are distinguished by not their secondary sexual traits like facial hair or breasts they're distinguished by their reproductive role uh and in relation to like how that reproductive role functions to form a new zygote the small gamete role or the large gamete role. So, for example, there's there's men with Klinefelter syndrome who de- who do develop breast tissue, uh, gynecomastia, I think it's called, and they're not any less male because of that. They're not more female or or on some spectrum. They have an atypical body type for a male, but they're still male because they develop testes, penis, internal reproductive structure of a male. And all of that combined, they develop down that male, uh, small gamete reproductive role. So, you know, yeah. Hmm. Well, what I have to say to that is, how dare you, you white (laughs) male, tell anyone how to live? Yes, I just invalidated so many people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So many. And all of that spectrum has just been obliterated. (laughs) (laughs) It's in in pieces on the ground. So what's so interesting is it's like they have decided that there's like non-binary by creating the most extreme binaries you can think of. Like if you as a man aren't Arnold Schwarzenegger and you as a woman aren't Julie Andrews, then you are Mm non-binary. Like clearly. Yeah. By by trying to deconstruct that binary of what a man or woman should look like, Mm -hmm. they wind up reinforcing it. Yeah, quite and strong. Making it even stronger, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and really backwards and regressive that way. Yeah. It's like <laughs> it's you. It's really ironic. <laughs> you know, I'm a woman, and my favorite thing to do is not give birth. So, therefore, <laughs> I'm non binary. Therefore, you're non binary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just don't really like birth as a woman. So, right. I must be non binary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I don't like lifting weights, you know? Yeah. As a man, I guess I might. I guess I'm more on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I never really. I never really enjoyed watching sports for the most part. It must be. It must be a little bit non-binary. Mm-hmm. But see, in the sense, like they're they're accessing a truth about reality, which is that like all of us are really unique. There's not a black and white male. There's not a black and white female. It's all very variable and diverse. But um, it doesn't mean that because of that diversity that male and female are undefinable, that they're social constructs or anything like that. The social constructs are really like more about ideas about how a woman or man should act or or how we should dress or things like that. That's more about what the social constructs are. But when you start to conflate those social constructs with biology, it just it just falls apart so quickly and you wind up reinforcing those those stereotypes and those roles. Like even, 
even a boy or girl playing with toys that are atypical of their sex and then thinking that, oh, my child must be non-binary or something like that. And it's like, no, you can still raise them. Like, you should raise them still as to understand, like, who they are, understand what sex they are, that they're uh, a male or female, a boy or girl. Uh, but then also at the same time realize that they can have a wide variation of expression and diverse characteristics. There's nothing wrong with there is, Those things are not mutually exclusive at all. But people treat it like they are. I know, yeah. I've always looked at the non-binary and thought, no, you're not non-binary, you just have a personality. Yeah, you just have a, that's, that's something I talked about in my, in my book when I was talking about gender identity. Because there's this proliferation of gender identities everywhere. And like, you see like even hundreds and it's like, how, like where do these come from, right? And it's, it's really people trying to find this identity and meaning in life and finding a community and everything like that and instead they're they're taking that and they're putting it on this incredibly high pedestal and even treating it as though it's like biology as though it's something deep within them in, in their biology when in reality it's it's often a, a transient identity uh, a, a personality a way of, of perceiving the world and expressing themselves um, and don't get me wrong like there's there's going to be biological differences with everybody when it comes to their personalities, how they express themselves, uh, how your brain's wired and how your nervous system is, is made up and how, how even like your body type and everything like that, that all affects too how you express yourself and how you see yourself. But um, they want to uphold these personalities that they uh, feel so intensely inside as these um, really strong like biological realities and yet at the same time they say that it's all socially constructed it's really contradictory mm -hmm. it is yeah so i was reading on reddit uh a post it must have gotten taken down because the comments must have gotten a little bit crazy oh, so i no. couldn't read <laughs> i couldn't find it to read it to you but i'll see if i can recap and it just is like a just shows you what we're trying to argue against. It, it feels so nonsensical. It's like, how do I even make an argument against oh, this? Yeah. Where he was saying, there is no male or female because you can only define male or female as opposed to the other. It's only in relationship to the other. Oh, okay. So yeah. there is nothing. And then he started yeah. expanding and saying, we can't even define what a table is because... <laughs> it's only in opposition only to in, what a chair yeah. is and so therefore there is actually nothing there is yeah. nothing real oh my gosh like, whoa that that argument is exactly from Jacques Derrida and ah. the binary the binary oppositions that was really famous in his work where he really talked about how how we can't we can't actually know what a male or female actually is because of that uh, how male and female relate to each other they're interconnected right you can't have one without the other and so for derrida like everything is can be reduced to language everything can be reduced to this linguistic construct and reality itself is just a construction of different uh words that are in opposition to each other and it's really hard to understand it's um very esoteric and detached 
-hmm. it's it's really focused on language to such a high degree it it puts it at the most um the highest like importance but i mean in reality like language is just or are we're choosing certain words to describe reality we're not choosing words to um at its base like interact with other words or um at some point like that self-referential thing that you were talking about and that derrida was talking about like that self-referential thing like you have to take it back at some point to reality at some point if you trace it back it goes back to reality or it should um especially as something as important as male and female mm-hmm. <laughs> to like our survival as a species and, and everything like that yeah um that's really interesting that reddit post so. yeah i really wish i could have found it but i probably honestly might not have been able to read it out loud because my brain would have not <laughs> been tracking yeah. like this, surely yeah. that can't be the right thing um oh my gosh yeah goodness oh i was yeah. gonna ask how i've been thinking a lot about how we don't as individuals we hardly know anything because we personally know it we know so many things because we've been taught and we're taking other people's words mm. for mm-hmm. yeah. for it as truth. So I'm wondering how you like know that there are two sexes. Mm-hmm. Have you looked into the microscope? Have you looked at the DNA or are you going off of school books? Mm-hmm. So the first good idea just with research is getting many different sources, many different diverse sources. And so... Um, going back to understanding first like what sexes are as and what scientists are saying about that and what research and evidence they give for that and how it builds up over time. So I went all the way back into even uh, even to Charles Darwin and went up into a lot into the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and even um, this past decade on the research of what sexes are. And this research builds and builds and builds on each other. And there's a whole field of the evolution of sex research where they're understanding how the sex has evolved. They do fields, they do field studies, they go out into the field, they do studies on these organisms. Um, they see what type of sexual system they had and they do these studies and, and then they collaborate with other researchers and theorists in this field and they keep building and building on that and and no i i haven't you know i haven't personally i have not personally done that or gone out there and and studied all these organisms um and and so that that's just relying on those researchers and those people's experiences and those people's evidence that they have uh collected over time and built up and there's a lot of things like that in life where it's it's something that you rely on other people for. Um, and, you know, you can question everything to the point of infinity where you have, like, nothing left or you have, like, no leg to stand on or no, no way of moving forward in the world because you're just, well, oh, can we actually trust that? Can we actually trust that? I don't know. I don't think that's, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, something as something as uh, foundational as male and female, that is just how we reproduce as a species. And it's how most 
species reproduce is is through those male and female roles having that difference in, in gamete size and and that's been you know that's been um, researched and evidenced and and understood in the field and observed for such a long time across so many species we can go into like the full just plant animal kingdom and look at the tree of life basically and see that most of most species that are more developed than unicellular organisms like multicellular eukaryotes most of those are just they use uh, male and female reproductive roles to, to reproduce so it's yeah um, you can deconstruct things to the point yeah. where you have nothing left well for example <laughs> we we know that it used to be acceptable not that long ago to stick an ice pick down somebody's eye and scramble up their frontal lobe to fix mm. depression or other mental illness. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> professionals have been wrong before. Yeah. So how do we know that this isn't just another one of those times? I think you should always be open-minded and question and, like, just be very inquisitive, uh, not take things at face value. So looking into a lot of different sources, sources that contradict each other, understanding the different um, viewpoints of everything, and then come to your own conclusion from that. So I would say never just blindly trust the experts, quote-unquote, because they've led us into many horrible places mm -hmm. over history. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you have to have your own, your own morals that are very grounded, you have to have your own um, your own desire to seek what's true, and uh, be open to questioning. And also, um, when you're reading, let's say peer-reviewed research, like read it carefully, understand the different layers to it, understand even like even the methods of how they go about that study, and um, and then take that with either a grain of salt or ho however much you want to take it and just move on, move on from there um, and keep testing, you know, testing your beliefs against reality. And sooner or later, you're going to, you're going to narrow into what's true if you do that right. And if you're in honestly in pursuit of the truth. Why does the truth matter? That's a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the truth matters because, in one sense, I mean, there's many layers to it. The truth matters in the sense that we, if we're not in line with the truth, we're in a, a disconcordance with reality. We're not aligned to reality. And when we're not aligned to reality, that can hurt ourselves. It can hurt other people. Um, it can stop us from flourishing, from having a happy and meaningful life. It can affect the world around us really bad. Like, being in tune with what's true and just in the simple sense of just what exists out in the world, how the world works. Like, you know, knowing that if I step out into the road and get hit by a bus, I'm probably going to die. <laughs> it's not smart <laughs> to do that. <laughs> just things that are like basically true like that. And there's deeper truths about reality that um, even, even truths that are concepts, like mathematical truths, you know, it, we couldn't function without understanding what's true and how that re relates to reality. Uh, our satellites, 
planes and all these electronics work because we know what's true and how physics interacts with reality, like how it works in reality and um, understanding how to manipulate reality. And even something like sexes, which are kind of more of these abstract concepts than, than like uh, compared to, let's say, like a specific object. You know, sexes mm -hmm. have all these physical parts that make them up, but like we talked about at the beginning, they're ultimately these evolutionary strategies for forming a new individual. And even something like that, that that's really uh, can be abstract and can be talked about in an academic way, even something like that is true and has truth to it because it describes something very uh, profound about reality. And so detaching yourself from truth can lead you to really, really, um, really bad places and unhealthy places. Um, it can destroy entire societies if an entire society abandons truth. Let's say like, for example, like Soviet Russia, you know, people, everybody's submitting themselves to the state and the state decides what's true. But they don't decide what's true in accordance with actual reality. They have this whole ideology and cult-like ideology that that they want everybody to follow. So it's it can be very destructive if if you don't seek what's true. And you don't always have to know what's true either. I mean, like you you can be exploratory and inquisitive and curious about the world. You don't have to know everything. Mm -hmm. And exploring. Um, I think the best way to to explore truth is definitely not to lie. You know, you don't lie. You just um, seek out what you think is true or what you know not to be true, at least, as Jordan Peterson has said many times. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, truth, there's so many reasons why <laughs> truth matters. And even for, like, even for, like, medical reasons, too. Like, you got to know what's happening as a doctor to somebody and you have to know what's true in, in that sense to save their life. So, yeah. 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 Um, did I interrupt you? No, no, okay. that's all. That's, you're good. I remember Steven Crowder doing a thing where he went into Planned Parenthood and he didn't shave. Oh. Mm -hmm. And he I think is I saw a that, large yeah. man, right? Mm -hmm. And just put on a wig and said he thought he was pregnant and could he take a pregnancy oh test gosh. at Planned Parenthood. But it was like so obvious that he was a, man. a male. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he actually borrowed some pee from a pregnant friend of his so it, oh, he would for sure get a yeah. positive test because he wanted to mm -hmm. see what they would do. And according to him, I really need to be better about fact checking, but <laughs> if, if a man gets a positive pregnancy test, it probably means he has prostate cancer. Oh, okay. And so he was wanting to see, I could see that. Yeah. if they were going to be honest about his medical condition or if they were just right. going to affirm his beliefs. Affirm his, yeah, affirm his beliefs, mm -hmm. yeah. And then he ended and they... up, by the end of the um, video, he was scheduling an abortion. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. That's I'll crazy. leave a link for that video. It's quite a thing yeah. to behold. Yeah. So they they wound up affirming his beliefs mm -hmm. over the truth. Yeah. Yep. And there's there's a balance to be had with that. I mean, like for that instance, that's a great example of where a person's feelings are not as important as what's true for that person's health. Yes. Um. And also, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh my man, gosh. what a time. How do you how do you feel about living in this particular time? That's question number one. Number yeah, two, do you think that we are just kind of being narcissistic? It, like, am I just feeling important that I live in such a crazy historical time? Or is it actually crazy and historical? And then how do you mm. feel about living in it? Yeah. First question, how, how do I feel about living mm -hmm. in it? Yeah. It's, it's really exciting in one sense. All the technology we have. How connected everybody is. Um, how you can find people of all different beliefs and perspectives so easily. Unlike Twitter, for instance. Mm -hmm. like that's, that's expanded my worldview and my perspectives even more having that experience on Twitter and interacting with so many people. Um, and then, but then, you know, there's, there's the flip side of um, people are really often too connected to, to technology where it can be addicting or destructive to their, their well-being. Um, there's, there's downsides to that, of course. There's also the scary thing about living in our times is that um, there seems to be just this constant denial of reality about what's true and what's not. There's this constant muddying of the waters with everything where, oh, like all these different people and institutions just muddying everything, making things so foggy. Um, it's just a great recipe for totalitarianism in the, in the broad sense, like just people um, blindly trusting experts blindly trusting authority, uh, not questioning things, not looking at actual evidence, and mm -hmm. not, not considering things in the full perspectives because all these institutions are telling people what to believe. Um, and at the same time, you know, that's not really unique necessarily throughout history. There's always been that. There's always been institutions and governments and authority that lies to people for whatever it is for power or for whatever reason. Um, and it, it, was, it is often hard to discern, you know, what's true in those times too when, when so many people are believing those, those lies. Um, and at the same time, it can also, with how connected we are, there's a dual kind of pro and con with all the technology and, and connection. One pro is that since everybody is so connected, it actually um, defragments, like de decentralizes. It, it fragments and decentralizes everything to the point where it makes it harder, I feel like, for governments to control people or for institutions to spread misinformation because uh, everything is so decentralized. Whereas before, before you had, like, let's say, social media, it was, uh, and before the internet, it was easier for major broadcasting corporations to kind of have a monopoly on everything sure. and for governmental institutions to have more of a monopoly. Um, but we're also seeing that more now, too, because social media is cracking down. You know, they're becoming a monopoly, like Twitter and Facebook. And that's kind of uh, unnerving, too, because we're kind of losing a little bit of that decentralization and fragmentation that we were starting to really have. Um, wherever there's more localization and decentralization, there's less tyranny by far. Um, so it's, it is really exciting <laughs> to live here because in this time, because we can like 
we can access like any information we could ever dream of having. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, it's just it's it's so amazing. Um, I wouldn't honestly, I wouldn't want to live any other time than now. Um, I wouldn't want to live in the past because it's it is really exciting. Um, we're living in some of the most prosperous societies on the planet mm-hmm. in world history. Like people don't realize how privileged they are, mm-hmm. um, and how how prosperous most of us are compared to all of world history. Um, so, yeah. So I think that so that that was your first question, right? Mm-hmm. And then your second one was. Um, the first one was, how do I feel living yeah. in this okay. time? Oh, the second one was, are we just being narcissistic for thinking oh. we're in a special time? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, um, we are in a special time. It's true. Like with the technology that we have. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's narcissistic to think so. Um, there's, there are certain aspects where people think that we are living in a really unique time. But in some aspects, we aren't. You know, there's things that repeat throughout history, like we just talked about. But, yeah. but no, I don't think we're narcissistic to think so. I think it's very unique. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That makes me feel better. I didn't want to yeah. find out I was a narcissist today. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a narcissist. You should feel so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so looking back, um, how old were you when you first really started stepping into this, at least publicly? Publicly, that would have been the beginning of 2020. Yeah. So that would have been, um, I was I was 21, about to turn 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So not that long ago, but... Not that long ago. Looking mm-hmm. back, looking back now, are you happy you've done this? Or are you kind of wishing, man, I should have just let somebody else take care of this? <laughs> Honestly, I am just incredibly happy I've done this. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, I, would have, I would not have imagined it or wanted it any other way. It's mostly because, like, I do really enjoy um, all the writing and the researching and then and then educating people and helping other people understand these truths about our reality that are really important to people's health and well-being and, and the well-being of society. Um, and just, like, on a curiosity level, like, learning and understanding the world around you. So it's been really, like, so... Uh, so meaningful to me to be able to to do this and I haven't gotten any really I mean I've gotten sometimes messages that are people where people are pissed at me yeah (laughs) or just you know just like saying nasty things but for the most part it's been really really positive Um, and I never knew just how many people there were who are on the political left fighting for people's um, liberty when it comes to like sex and gender, especially as it relates to like holding upholding male and female mm. as important categories. Like that really opened my eyes more because I, I tend to be more um, conservative libertarian in general. Um, so I didn't necessarily have a great understanding of the different viewpoints within the left when it came to sex and gender. And so when I started researching that and then getting onto Twitter, most of my following is left. And I was pleasantly surprised at how much, um, how much courage and like 
uh, fight and, and desire for knowledge there is when it comes to sex and when it comes to the truth of what male and female are uh, on, on the left. And even from people like, even from people who are Marxists, I have Marxists following me, I have socialists following me. Like it's, there's a huge diversity of people hmm. on all across the whole spectrum. And yeah, I think it's, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Um, and it is really meaningful, and and I feel like I'm contributing to something that's important. So, yeah. That's huge. That's huge. Where do you think this is coming from? I think there. it usually tends to be wrapped up into two ideas. You have just people be crazy. <laughs> they just want to make up their own rules. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot more conspiratorial route, where which is this is stemming from something with an end in mind. Uh, mm -hmm. Which one do you tend to believe more? Uh, I think most people in general just are getting swept up in this wave and following the culture, feeling like, for instance, it's the um, it's both the moral and enlightened thing to do to believe that, let's say, sex is on a spectrum, or that. Um, that male and female are social constructs that you can just identify as anything you please, and there's no there's no effects to that. Like it's just a healthy thing to do in general. Um, so, yeah, I think for the most part, it's people wanting to express themselves, wanting to feel uh, at home in a community, and feel identified with something important, and feeling like they're fighting for people's rights. And but then there's also the side where uh, it's more nefarious when it comes to, especially, especially I think more of the academics, mm -hmm. more of the theorists. It's to me, it's not as innocent. To me, when it comes to let's say people like Judith Butler, founder of queer theory, or one of the founders of queer theory, um, she wrote that in the in the she was writing in the 1990s, and she was saying that. She came out the perspective of that not just gender, not just the way we express ourselves, not just the way we attach meaning to uh, male and female or man and woman, not just those things are socially constructed, but she was saying that that sex itself is also just as socially constructed as gender, and perhaps it was always gender. <laughs> so there's no really, there is no real hmm. male or female at all, and. Um, so I just, I don't understand, like, where some of these people are coming from at all. And it, and it seems like <laughs> there is such a, for some, for some, there is nefarious reasons. For some, um, maybe it's just a really uh, intellectual passion of theirs. I think there's people like Foucault, who was one of the post one of the main postmodern philosophers um, writing in the 60s and 70s in France. And Foucault... I feel like he had some nefarious reasons for some of his views. Um, there was this desire in Foucault to kind of liberate people's sexuality, mm -hmm. but liberate even children's sexuality. Yeah, wasn't he kind of a pedophile? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, he was. <laughs> he might have an ulterior motive there. Then. <laughs> yeah, there might be an ulterior motive there for sure. And he wanted to, to, he voted, I don't know if he voted or wanted to abolish, either way, uh, he wanted to get rid of the age of consent laws in France, among many other philosophers at the time. And, and also Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre, 
and people like that, they all want, they wanted the consent laws abolished in France. Um, and yeah, so there's nefarious reasons for some of these things, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I have a couple ideas. I agree with you that there are lots of people that are getting swept up and they truly believe that it's the progressive mm. caring thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just talking about the average citizen, not the doctors yeah. and not um, the academics. Oh, yeah. But mm -hmm. for the academics and, academics and doctors, I think that there could be a couple things at play. Mm. Um, I'll start with the most conspiratorial first and most out there. Mm. Um, I'm also not in fear of being demonetized. I have never been monetized, nice. so I can say anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, You're immune. Yes. Totally. Yeah. So I think it could be a form of eugenics. We have seen eugenics movements before, and the system is going to render thousands of teenagers infertile thousands and thousands um so that's probably the worst and maybe most out there uh i think probably the most likely is that doctors are in it they're they're bound to make a lot of money over these sex yeah. reassignment surgeries it's highly specialized and going to be highly that expensive. i agree with yeah. completely <laughs> yeah they have no reason to say no, yeah, no, you're a, you're a woman. I'm not going to do that to you. Mm. They have every incentive to say, well, I definitely could use another month-long vacation in Fiji. Why not? Yeah, and affirm that yeah. person's desires at expense of their health without concern to what's Without concern for what's best for them, yeah. Yeah. Whatever happened to the Hippocratic Oath? I know. Yeah, yeah it's flown out the window. It's, <laughs> it's been, it's just lying in ashes now yeah. on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> And then I think the third thing could be that um, generally we've become to we've come as a society to worship the modern medical system, which mm. there's a lot of you are a skin bag full of chemicals that could go wrong at any second, and we specialists have found out how to make synthetic chemicals to write it for you, and so right. any little ailment we immediately rush to go get chemicals it's like it, the it's like the uh, chemical imbalance hypothesis with right. depression yeah yeah like oh we can just fix your chemical imbalance with this drug and you're all good right and they don't tell you hey because we're going to artificially give you this your body will think it doesn't need to produce it anymore therefore you will be dependent on this if you mm -hmm. want to not go into depression again <sighs> i know oh my gosh <laughs> You, a book could be books could be written on that yeah. just that alone. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I think a big part of it is the money when it comes to doctors and wanting to um, just be lucrative with with their what they get uh, and in doing things that don't uh, help people in the long run, but but help them. Mm-hmm. And. It's, we see that all the time with especially young people going into gender clinics and, and being prescribed hormones like testosterone for, for teenage girls without even any visit with their parents, any psychological consultation, just uh, able to walk into the clinic and get hormones, mm -hmm. like get prescribed hormones with one visit. And yeah, the money is such a huge, huge incentive. Um, that's partially also the incentive with even the COVID vaccines, mm -hmm. getting out Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson and all those 
they're very, they got out so quickly, um, partially due to the incentive for profit. And the government is a co-patent um, on Pfizer. Yeah. The federal, the, like, that's crazy. Don't even get me started <laughs> on the vaccine. <laughs> Don't even. <laughs> yeah, it could be, that could be another podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I can cut this out if you wish, uh, but I've just been wondering this whole time. Are you religious? That's a good question. I would say no, I'm not super religious. I do believe in God, though. Okay. I, I do place an importance on um, believing in uh, there's a creator to the universe, that there's meaning and purpose to our lives and all that. Okay. But I never really attach strongly to um, being religious, I guess in the sense of maybe... I guess when I hear religious, I think maybe more ritualistic, maybe. Sure. You know, um, but I grew up in a Christian household, and the great thing was, like, my parents were always really supportive and open-minded when it came to learning about other cultures, learning about other religions, and even, like, exploring science and being really scientifically minded. I think it's... It was it was great. Yeah, you got the best of both words. Worlds. Yeah, I was getting the feeling from watching your videos that this guy. I'm just getting feelings that he's probably Christian in leaning, but mm -hmm. I was also getting the very strong feeling that you were being very strategic in oh, not yeah. using religious arguments because mm -hmm. this is a scientific question. But um, oh yeah, yeah, I can yeah. take that out if I'm... you want because you've been very particular about not being religious. So. Oh, it's okay. okay. You can keep that okay. in. Okay, cool. Yeah, totally cool. Um, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I'm really careful, definitely, about not uh, bringing in any type of religious argument to any of the things I talk about because ultimately it's, it's just, it is relevant in the sense that there's metaphysical questions to be answered. You know, mm -hmm. how did life begin and things like that? How did the universe begin? But... Um, when it comes to answering questions like this, when it comes to um, like why on the scientific level do male and female exist, it's it's really important to uh, keep those things separated. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought of this right now. You can tell me if I'm making connections where it's mm -hmm. not there. <laughs> but you know, um, if we take the biblical account of Adam and Eve. Uh, mm -hmm. just strictly face value we have adam who was made and it was a while before eve was before, made yeah mm -hmm. and how there was then a separation between the two reproductive roles and the two mm -hmm. um maybe like household roles you have more of a disciplinarian and authority versus the nurturer and caregiver mm -hmm. and in a way this feels like a twisted twisted version of the truth where i mean i suppose if we i'm making a lot of jumps here but there's thoughts that once we get to heaven we will maybe be more of a complete version of ourselves because right now we're only uh, half of right. the nature of yeah, god like it's separate yes and then reunited into one right yeah, so yeah. then yeah. if is this a twisted version of that truth that no here on earth we can be reunited in our own way to be the one that we were meant to be. What do you mean by, like, um, on Earth, like reunited on Earth? What yeah, like, 
being reunited with our complete nature and just not the mm. the one half of the yin and yang system mm -hmm. that is male and female like for people trying to like like uh, pursue or <laughs> pursue like a, a completeness here. yes yeah 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 and like maybe maybe that's like they're look they're not looking at the right place mm -hmm. right yeah mm -hmm. Because that's not, not the end point, right. right? Like, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with that, that, like, there's not, there's plenty of meaning in our lives to be found, um, even though, let's say, we are separated into these two distinct halves, uh, male and female. I mean, um, well, yeah, you're not going to, like, you can find a lot of meaning in life always, but you also have to put something at a higher value that goes beyond you, that is more metaphysical, uh, like you were describing. Mm -hmm. And I think people often lose sight of that, and they focus on very uh, material, worldly things that don't last. And so just for me, like my life philosophy and living life i just want to i want to focus on things that to me will last and do produce a lot of meaning um and not seeking just material or or uh, simple uh, physical things i just took a <laughs> i just took an online class this summer called happiness and well-being um <laughs> and we were talking about the science of happiness um how to measure happiness and things like that on a subjective level, and then also the philosophy of happiness on an objective level. And they were talking about the distinctions between like your momentary levels of happiness, kind of contentment in the moment, versus more of a long-term uh, reflective happiness where you look back on your life and or look back on your life so far and think, oh, yeah, this has been a really happy, meaningful life for me even though there's been times where it's been, you know, negative. So there's ways of, um, that are really interesting of thinking about that, thinking about happiness and meaning. Uh, and people do often focus on happen happiness and meaning in more of a hedonistic way, mm -hmm. where they're just searching for, for simple pleasures that don't last at all. Um, and that might give people meaning in the short term, but I, a lot of times I feel like that doesn't give them really meaning in the long term at all. Mm -hmm. Do you think that if there wasn't so much censoring and weird political correctness going on, would you still feel the need to publicly go against these myths? Or, because um, I know for me, that's a lot of my interest is like, why has this mm -hmm. taken over politically? It seems so weird. If this was just a small little corner of the internet, I wouldn't care. Um, yeah. So what are your like overarching um what's the word I'm looking for motivations and what's in it for you? Yeah, I couldn't see myself I would have never gotten into this if this hadn't become a huge debate in our culture. Um I could see myself always being interested in biology and psychology and understanding what makes us who we are as individuals and understanding our uniqueness as individuals. But I would have not gotten into this specifically in this way 
if the culture hadn't been like this. Um, and my motivation is to really help people fight back against the culture, the culture's beliefs regarding sex, regarding the idea that male and female are socially constructed, regarding the idea that, you know, you um, have to behave a certain way as a male or female. And so understanding all these things, I mean, it's, it's really meaningful, and that motivates me greatly to, to interact with people and help people that way and mm -hmm. educate people. Um, and it, it seems really meaningful to fight <laughs> for truth and fight for important truths um, that, that affect people's health, affects people's well-being and psychological health and um, mm -hmm. all that. It's really meaningful. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever converted anyone? Hmm. There's been, for the most part, it's been most people who I've talked with who are very, um, who agree with me, they've always been kind of, they've usually always been, mm -hmm. uh, had that viewpoint as regards to, let's say, as it relates to, let's say, uh, sex. Um, there have been a few people I've gotten messages from where, oh, they, they said that I've watched your videos, I've listened to you, um, I've read your threads, and I've read the research you've cited. And, you know, I'm starting to think there's a lot of truth to <laughs> that, yeah, there is just really male and female. Maybe there's some blurry lines, too, somewhere. But, but yeah, there have been a few people who have um, come to that conclusion. And it's been, that's been really cool. Um, for the most part, though, it's people who are willing to have a conversation, let's say, uh, but they're not completely swayed. They might be really sure. curious and inquisitive about it. They might ask me some questions on Twitter, let's say, and I'll respond to them. I'll respond to them uh, with my own writing and then some, some of the peer-reviewed research for like, examples that they can read. Um, and that often helps, too. It often helps them kind of lower, not not be as defensive. Um, if I'm just being really clear and matter of fact and understanding to to their perspectives, um, and I'll try and focus on doing that if they're receptive. But if the person is like just completely nasty or sarcastic or like they just don't seem like they're <laughs> it's not going to be any benefit for interact to interact with them at all. Mm -hmm. It's such a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, because they're just not going to they're yeah. not going to listen or yeah. or want to want to learn or they're not curious. And so, but for the most part, yeah, that that's how it's been. Um, mm -hmm. But no, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I've converted a lot of people by like just by people like telling me. Right, right. Converted. I have had a lot of people tell me like, oh, it's been so helpful to be able to. Articulate these truths that I've known, but haven't been able to, you know, say as well. Or, or like I don't know where to cite the research mm -hmm. to back up my point. And now, so many people have expressed that they can now and understand it at a deeper level. And also, they're able to better communicate those things too. So that's been really, really meaningful. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, 
I have a few more questions and it could go mm-hmm. a couple different ways. We, I have a couple more like sciencey questions or a couple mm-hmm. more psychological type oriented questions. Yeah. Uh, which way would you rather go? Um, let's see. This Honestly, the psychological one sounds pretty interesting. Okay. <laughs> so I suppose these aren't as much questions as they are ideas mm-hmm. that I've been thinking about as I've been listening to podcasts and reading this kind of yeah. stuff is – it feels a lot more like we're arguing arguing over people's roles in society a lot more than like genitalia. Um, mm-hmm. And there seems to be a lot of the grass is greener on the other side. I'm a 12-year-old boy. I'm not a jock and I'm getting made fun of. I think it would be easier if I were a girl and mm-hmm. girls doing the opposite thing. Yeah, well, maybe I'm not a cheerleader and maybe I have... I'm a little bit hairier than the average girl. So then maybe I should just be a boy and then I wouldn't even have to think about it. And surely like they aren't even considering what it might be to struggle as the opposite sex. It's just the grass is greener on the other side. Yeah. It's a very superficial Mm -hmm. view of what living as the opposite sex is like. Like it's often reduced to just appearance, how people perceive me, uh, but not really anything deeper not how it just feels like to live in a body as a male or female mm-hmm. and having <clears throat> having different even like walking like different uh pelvis width and everything like that and just a different you know everything down to that detail um is so different mm-hmm. um and yeah there's a lot of superficial like the grass is greener on that side and they're, they're not thinking through those long-term things that they either aren't going to be able to ever achieve, mm-hmm. you know, so it's very unrealistic, or or attaching to these um, superficial ideas of what a male or female is like. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember listening to uh, just pelvis reminded me listening to James Lindsay and Joe Rogan. And oh, they yeah. started talking about man spreading and how it's oh, yeah. like biologically a thing just because of how <laughs> hips are shaped. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I was like, when I, when I, I remember listening to that. I was like, oh my gosh, that actually makes perfect sense. It does. Of course, of course there's like some people who like way overdo it, you oh. know, where it doesn't actually yeah. relate to specifically the hips. But no, there's definitely a tendency mm-hmm. for that. And, and yeah, that makes total sense. For it to be a hip thing. Yeah, and I feel like you can even see it if you watch people walk. Like, men seem to walk with their feet a lot further apart even, and women have their feet a lot closer together. Mm-hmm. Super That's interesting. True. Yeah, <laughs> that is interesting. <laughs> There's so many things like that. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, you can't ever you can't ever really replicate as the, op- as, let's say, you try to transition to the opposite sex. It's just not going to not gonna cross over right really right yeah yeah and then so one thing that is interesting is i think that they there are some good points about gender roles being just culturally constructed things Mm. um i've been listening to the dark horse podcast with I have too. <laughs> Eric Weinstein, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and or um, yeah, yeah, Brett and Heather, right? Yeah, and yeah. just last week, I think they were talking about how in many different cultures there are many different ideas of whose job is what. Like oh, in yeah. one culture, it is the man's job to be the weaver. He is the mm-hmm. weaver, and then 
like a woman isn't allowed to do it. And then other cultures might have that be a more ambiguous job, like maybe where you're right. talented. And then another one, it'll be, no, this is the woman's role. So but I, the pattern that they see is that like throughout all those cultures, there's always a division yes, of labor. Yes. And in that, some sense between the sexes. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's not a you're less than or more than. Right. It is these jobs need done. How and do we, we both decide? Agree, like this is how we're going to divide it. Yes. Yeah. And, and like, yeah. Go ahead. I'm because bo both because uh, both males and females, both men and women, could like easily fulfill um, most of those cultural roles mm -hmm. and vice versa. Um, but yeah, it's just a division of labor like that. Yeah. There are certain things that are divided based on reproduction, obviously, but but most of the cultural divisions of labor, a lot of those, um, they do have some tie back to to biology. But yeah, a lot of them are really really just oh we need you here and you here it doesn't really have to do with your sex necessarily yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i i love when jordan peterson talks about the gender gap not being a thing because mm. he says the more free a country is the more divergence you see in the male mm -hmm. and female job choices that was fascinating yeah, yeah. super it's completely contradictory to what you'd expect from a social constructionist perspective You'd expect that, oh, as these countries become freer, they'll have more gender egalitarian, like a uh, gender parity, basically, mm -hmm. in all these jobs, just naturally. Uh, but, but no, that's not what they find. It, it's exactly the opposite. The more gender egalitarian the country is, the, the more um, uh, stark the contrast is between the, the uh, occupations, like the representation in those occupations. Yeah, it's 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 so strange. That, that's a big thing I explored in that book, the gender paradox mm. was was that. Um, yeah, it's it's so fascinating. Yeah, I work in construction, and I can tell you, I'm the only woman I've ever met in construction. Oh <laughs> so I believe it. Yeah, and the women I do see, like uh, we do a lot of new construction, and I'll see only mm. ma male plumbers, only male electricians, and then only female house cleaners. And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh. this is so funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know, I don't think I would be into it if it wasn't a family business. So it's right. just handy for me, but. Yeah, it is. It's just funny. And I'm thinking if you just want gender equality so bad, why don't I see you fixing power poles in the middle of a yeah, blizzard? Yeah, exactly. Push for yeah. Push for parity among bricklayers. Yep. Because bricklayers are like 99%, close to 100% male. And yeah, and things like that. All the construction-based stuff. And yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, to me, it's just hypocritical. They're only pushing for these high-end industrial, like high-end um, white-collar, uh, <laughs> like STEM jobs, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot yep. of STEM jobs, and yeah, it's it's they need to push if they're going to do that. They need to do it equally and push for all these all the jobs to be equally represented. But the problem is, you're never going to be able to get equal representation unless you do that by the force of law unless you mandate it from the top down. Because mm -hmm. even if even if males and females were pretty much the same, um, there's still differences that would manifest just slightly that would, on a societal level, produce those differences. Um, you're, not, you're never going to achieve parity uh, in really any demographics uh, on anything. I mean, you can, you can, um, you can 
roughly push for those things and through certain methods, but you're never going to achieve that 50-50 in everything unless you do it from the top down. Mm -hmm. And that would just destroy uh, the whole merit system. <laughs> it would destroy just, oh, it's just, that would not be good. Because yeah. we want the best people for the best roles. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah, I can guarantee you if you tried to shove me into a very early education teacher job, <laughs> it wouldn't no. go well for anyone in that situation. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, we got we to search for people who have the like who have the best skill sets for those for the jobs that they want to be in. You know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it'd be so counterproductive to put people into roles that they're not suited for. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. your field doesn't mean that you you know have to go into a people oriented job. <laughs> you know. You can go into anything you want. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I want to be mindful of your time. We're coming down to the end of when you said you were available. Is there yep. anything else you want to mention? Hmm, I can't think of anything. I think I really appreciated what we we talked about. Um, all the all the stuff about not just the science, but the psychological aspects of things and the in the personal too. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was really meaningful. That was cool. 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 Why don't you, um, come on words. Why don't you plug, plug, <laughs> plug your stuff and then yeah. I'll ask you a couple little final closing yeah, questions. Good. Uh, so my Twitter handle is Z A E lefty L E F T Y. And I post a lot about sex and gender, of course, really focused on the biology of sex and how the sex has evolved how they develop in the womb, um, and always citing peer-reviewed research, too, that you can access and look at. Um, and then also, my book is The Gender Paradox. That's on Lulu, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those retailers. And you can also, on YouTube, you can go to Paradox Institute on YouTube, and that has all my animated videos on there, too. Awesome. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So these questions, I... I ask everyone, they're just kind of meant to be more lighthearted closers. Um, so you can take nice. as one sentence or 12, whatever you see fit to answer. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, do you prefer the office or parks and rec? Oh, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> I prefer parks and rec a little, just a little bit over the office, <laughs> even though I've watched both in full. Um, I think cause parks and rec, it just has more of a warmth to it. I mm -hmm. think in some sense, there's also a diversity, more diversity of like locations that they go to. Just like on an aesthetic level, it seems warmer and, and brighter hmm. um, and more playful, even more playful and like silly to a degree. <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> yeah. In Office, they do have all those qualities too, but it's just Parks and Rec has this, these qualities that kind of appeal to me more, a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like The Office might have a little bit of a stronger story arc with... Um... Especially yeah. with Michael and the Jim and Pam story. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what keeps you into it is the storylines. But Parks yeah. and Rec, it's just the jokes that keep you coming The jokes out. and the character interactions. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I love, oh, my gosh, Chris Traeger. He'd make me laugh so much. Like, uh, Stop <laughs> I, am I am literally about to die. Yeah. <laughs> or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. He's such a germphobe and everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. Question Great. number two. 
is Genesis chapters 1 through 11, the Adam and Eve creation through Abraham, well, right up to Abraham, are those history or is it myth slash legend? That's another excellent question. Oh my gosh. You're writing like books about this too. Mm -hmm. Oh man. Yeah, I, I thought about this and did a research on this too a long time ago. Um, so, oh man, I think for example, okay, there's there's parts of it that I think are complete history. I think there's also parts that are partially um, stories that relate to foundational truths about our reality that have been passed on over time. And the distinction between those, to between that history and the story is really hard to separate. Uh, sometimes it's not. Sometimes like you can find archeological evidence for certain things. Um, other times you can't and it's just, sometimes it can be hard to, to know. Um, so I don't know if we'll ever know 100%. Let's say like for example with mm -hmm. Genesis 1 through 11. Um, we can know to a degree on certain things, certain aspects. Let's say there may be history, but but yeah. So I guess I guess that would be a little bit mix of both and a little bit of I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think that there are aliens? Hmm. I think that there is a definitely a possibility for aliens to exist with just how many galaxies there are. Like I think there's trillions of galaxies mm -hmm. out there, and easily, easily trillions upon trillions of stars and solar systems. So I think that yeah, there's probably aliens. There's probably aliens. Um, how advanced they are, I don't know. There has been no radio signal from aliens. <laughs> haven't been able to get any signal from any intelligent life anywhere. But we've only been looking for not very long. Right. With like radar. Um, but yeah, I can also, also a part of me can see that we're the only, Earth has like the only life forms on, in like the universe. I can see that too, honestly. Um, but I do tilt towards, there's at least some type of other life forms to a degree. Um, even as simple as bacteria, probably, in mm -hmm. other places. But, um, <laughs> there's also an interesting question of like, if there's no if there's no intelligent alien life forms that we can find, has there been in the past? Have they uh, gone to extinction based on their own maybe technology or something like that? And like, have they have they crossed a barrier and been like exterminated and <laughs> just gone to extinction? Um, a barrier that we haven't crossed yet. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all those questions too. So, yep, it's fascinating. Yeah, who knows. <laughs> I was hoping with the declassification of the UFO stuff that we would find out more, but it seems oh, yeah. like there was nothing because I never no. heard about it. Yeah, no, they didn't really declassify much after that or like say much, you know. Mm -mm. All the videos were really blurry and hard to see what was going on. I mean, I could think that maybe that was a drone technology that, that our government or some, some government was testing. But at the same time, I'm like, how could it go 13,000 miles per hour? Yeah. <laughs> that fast. And, like, just stop on a dime and, like, change directions. Like, the, you'd think the G-forces would tear it apart. 
right. even if it was a drone. Mm-hmm. But I don't who know. knows? Who knows? I hope to find out in my lifetime. I, I hope too. we'll know for sure. I uh, do too. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, last one. Mm-hmm. Who or what inspires you to be your best self? Hmm. I've had a lot of role models. Um, one definitely is my my dad. He's my uh, role model for sure. Just like he's always um, great at taking action. Great at taking action, even when things are tough. Uh, that's a huge, like huge, amazing character trait that's really important to have. Um, and also people like Jordan Peterson, people like Ben Shapiro, who I hear mm-hmm. is a right-wing ghoul. <laughs> people call him a right-wing ghoul. <laughs> but he's he's been a role model of mine too, just in terms of how intelligent he is mm-hmm. and inquisitive. Um, and then Jordan Peterson for more of the... Um, looking at things in a deeper way, being really nuanced, uh, looking at things in a high-resolution way, and seeing all the different connections that that topics have that you wouldn't expect, like looking at the psychological significance of biblical stories. And so all that, like those people have been really, really strong role models and inspirations for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, that wraps me up. Thank you for doing this. I can't tell you, I was so nervous because (laughs) I knew that you accepted on a recommendation by Maggie. And so I was like, I need to make sure I'm representing her well. I don't want Zach to come away being like, Maggie, you just wasted an afternoon (laughs) of my life. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Not at all, no. Yeah, it, it was really, I really enjoyed it. Good. And you're awesome. Like all the questions you asked, really engaging and... Um, really made me think too. And it was really fun. It was really fun talking to you. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you again. And I will uh-huh. probably release this in a couple weeks. So I'll let you know when it's out. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Cool. I appreciate it. Like, thanks for the time too. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. You too. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider sharing or giving me a five star review. I would also be happy to hear your feedback. You can email me at peakcuriositypod at gmail.com. If you want to give even more support for this very free podcast, you could go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash peakcuriosity. I'll talk to you next week.